0: Thanks, Catherine. Why don't we pray together? Lord, um, it's exciting to hear uh, another period of the way you have worked throughout history. It's exciting to hear your view on the world and to see from your eyes this morning how you see us and life and leadership. And we ask that your spirit would help us today to see what you have to say to us to come to you and to serve you with our all. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. Whose opinion do you listen to? Who do you go to for advice or for um, counsel? Who is it that you follow, you subscribe to, you like, depending on which method of social media you use, (laughs) And how then do you decide who is worth following? So much has been written on the topic of leadership. So many people in our world, in this room, are looking for, for people to lead or for someone to follow, to subscribe to, to, to to try and get as much as we can from. It doesn't matter whether it's business or sport or entertainment or fashion. Everyone chooses leaders, Right? We all choose people to, to follow. But it's more than just choosing leaders. We're actually shaped by the leaders we follow, aren't we? I mean, uh, their ideas, their example, their vision, their value, their teaching, these are the things that, that will mold us and shape us into who we are and what we do. Who's shaped your life? Who's shaping your life? Who's... Influencing the big decisions that are before you today. Well, so much ink is spent on the question of how to be a leader, yet so little is spent on how to choose who to follow. You ever notice that? The book of 1 Samuel is about leadership. Three great leaders, really. Uh, Samuel, who we'll see today. uh, Saul, in a few uh, weeks' time. And then... David, Israel's second and greatest king. Now the book's set around fifteen hundred BC, fifteen hundred years before Christ, and it's really shaped around the people of Israel, the people of God. If you know their history, um God chose Abram, he gave him some promises, which you'll we'll look at in a second, and then he kind of brought them these people, his family, out of Egypt, out of suffering, through the Red Sea, um and toward a promised land, a land that was supposed to be filled with blessings. But then they went through this period of the Judges that we just saw in that great kids talk. Uh, It had been about 200 years of this extraordinary social upheaval, almost anarchy at times. And, And at the moment, at this point in time, it doesn't look any better. As we get to the end of the book of Judges we see the situation that is directly before Samuel. See, chronologically, Samuel follows Judges. In the Hebrew Old Testament, Ruth isn't in the middle of those two books. It's, it's, it's at the other end. It's gathered together with some of the writings. And so if you're reading through the Hebrew Old Testament, you, you end Judges with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. We're in the midst of a leadership crisis. That's the context of what's going on here at this point in time. Can you imagine that for a moment? No king. No police, no authority, no government. Just every man, woman and child for themselves. How do you reckon that's going to play out? How do you reckon that would go today? What would it be like living in a society where you just did whatever you wanted with no, with no kind of authority to keep people in check? And then you add to that foreign nations attacking you, coming in and wanting to take your land from you. Nations with structure, with leadership, with armies. <laughs> do you get the picture of the anarchy that is here as we open the pages of 1 Samuel? The desperate need in this crisis for a leader, for someone to lead God's people. It raises the question, what type of leader did these people need? What type of leader do do we need? The context of of what's gone on here really stems right back to a promise that God gave to Abraham in in Genesis 12. Uh, The the promise had three parts, and it's on the screen right now. Uh, God promised that through this man called Abraham, um, he would make a great nation. uh, And he would make Abraham's name great. He would then give great blessing and land to that nation. He would bless them beyond imagine. And then through them, through this nation, he would bring blessing to the entire earth. That's kind of the controlling promise of the rest of the Bible around those three questions. Who who are God's people? Where are they? Where is the place they are in? And how is God bringing blessing to the world through them? Seems to be the controlling narrative of the whole Bible from here. But this was God's promise. These people, here were God's people. But given their rocky instability throughout this time of Judges, it it raises the question, what's God got to do with leadership? What's God doing here with his people? What difference does he make to the kind of leader they should be looking for, to the kind of leader I should be looking for, and more importantly, to the kind of leader I should follow? What we'll see through this brilliant narrative of Israel's history is God's phenomenal answer to Israel's predicament. It's what 1 Samuel's all about. We'll eventually see that God's answer to Israel turns out to be his answer to the whole world. And also the answer to every person in this cinema. <laughs> so the scene starts with the words about a certain man. A certain man is what it kind of describes the beginning of this whole book with. We've got in our heads that the grave background of matters of, of national importance at stake. No king in Israel. Everyone doing whatever they wanted. Anarchy going round. And the scene zooms in. 1 Samuel 1 verse 1. There was a man from Ramatham Zophim. We'll call it Rama. In the hill country of Ephraim, his name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth and Ephraimite. Now, as I come to this book looking for a leader, that's kind of an anticlimax. I don't know, to you, as you hear those place names, as you hear them there, if they mean much to you. That's kind of a, a, a normal response as we open up Old Testament books to hear these names and people, and we don't really know them, we haven't heard of them, but we assume that the people who would have received this would have been like, oh yes, this is good, but we feel kind of distant. Although the problem here is that the first readers of this letter still would have found these names and places unfamiliar. They weren't great places, this was no great city, there were no great lineage of people that were before, before us today. Ramah was this obscure little town of no great importance. I'm expecting a book on leadership, on saving God's people from from this anarchy that's going on from the nations around them, and I hear of this town of no little importance. There's no reason we should have any interest in a certain man of Ramah. We then hear about his family, who are all relatively insignificant and obscure. Uh, They're Ephraimites, who hail from an even more insignificant an obscure place called Ephrathah. It's just because it's hard to say. Maybe it was weird and no one wanted to go there. I don't know. It wasn't really a tourist destination in Israel. At least, not then. See, Ephrathah would be called and was called by another name that you might now remember, Bethlehem. Hang on a minute. In the course of this book, we're going to meet another Ephraimite. A man named David, who would be the kind of pinnacle man from this city, from this little town. He would make this insignificant town of Bethlehem famous for all time. He would put it on the tourist tourist map. Three centuries later, then, the prophet Micah would write these words. Have a look, they're on the screen. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one Who is to be ruler in Israel Whose origin is from Of old, from ancient days It seems insignificant Here and it was to them But here friends Are the beginnings of the leader we are looking for Here's the beginnings Of something great But what should strike us at this point In the narrative of 1 Samuel Is not the significance of these details But their insignificance They're kind of nothingness. From the point of view of social standing at the time, fame and power within the nation, Elkanah and his family were nobodies. The people we're meeting, they're no one special at all. And here we get a hint at the first theme in 1 Samuel. It'll develop through the whole book. You'll hear it lots. The solution to Israel's leadership crisis will not be found in the expected places. There's no prominent and powerful leader with an impressive pedigree on show here before us today. Just a certain man, a certain nobody out of nowhere. And it makes this point impossible to miss. This book is about God. This book is about the God who makes something out of nothing. Who takes life and makes it out of death who does blessing out of scarcity, who who takes makes a somebody out of a nobody. We'll see this pattern repeated throughout the whole book. God is the one who is in focus here. But in the face of this national leadership crisis, the obscurity continues. Uh, we see a wife without child. Uh, we hear of Elkanah's wife or wives, Um, Now, polygamy wasn't really how God designed marriage. Um, It wasn't forbidden throughout the Old Testament, but you can be sure that whenever polygamy happens throughout the Old Testament, and it happens often, it always leads to significant issues. You have to be kind of Einstein to work out why, right? You kind of put two people in a house with one guy, it's just not going to work well. And the most um, probable reason for polygamy, especially here in this case was the pain of childlessness. See, Hannah, Elkanah's first wife, was childless. That's what 1 Samuel 2 says. Those two words produce all sorts of pain in the marriages of many, don't they? Maybe you've been in that situation or know others that have been in that situation longing to have children. Maybe you are longing to have kids. You know what it's like. And it's a real pain, it's a deep pain, it hurts. But just think for a second, in the face of a national leadership crisis, why are we hearing about a woman who is childless? Why is this of national importance, world importance, global importance? The focus on the sad circumstances of one woman in Israel just seems so ordinary, so well, on a national scale, insignificant. But there are two reasons the introduction of Hannah and her trouble should catch our attention. They should spark, oh, there's something going on here. The first reason is when we come to this part of the Bible and we see her childlessness, we should ask, where's the blessing? Where's the blessing that God promised Israel, his people, that they will be blessed among all nations and through them all nations will be blessed? He'd sent Israel through the Red Sea. He'd given them a land of their own. He'd promised them blessing, hadn't He? In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy 7 um, explains that God did promise blessing. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 7 verse 14. If you trust in Jesus, if they follow, if you follow Him, sorry, if you trust in God, <laughs> if you follow Him, Deuteronomy 7 14, you'll be blessed above all people. There'll be no infertile male or female among you or your livestock. That's a promise from God. Yet here, we're like, where's the blessing? What's happening? What's going on here? Well, the context tells us what's, what's going on. Remember, these were the days when there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever they wanted. Following God was not the norm. Listening to Him and serving Him was not something Israel were doing. Blessing was not something Israel deserved not at all and so at the start of 1 Samuel Hannah's troubles kind of become a picture of the whole of Israel of Israel's troubles of Israel's issues that are going on of suffering the consequences of turning their back on God where is the blessing well they have no leader they're doing whatever they want who would lead this rebellious nation Where would the blessing that God promised Israel come from? And what about Hannah? Like, where is her blessing? Isn't she part of God's people? Out of seeming insignificance, in a context where God's blessing is nowhere to be found, we meet a woman whose name, by the way, means grace. Undeserved blessing. What is going on here? Could this be the start of something new, something good? Could this be the beginning of the blessings of Israel? Could, could God, despite the rebellion of his people and through such seemingly insignificant nobodies, bring blessing to the world? There are many reasons to prick our ears and get excited at the start of the seeming insignificance of this book. But the second reason Hannah and her troubles should kind of catch our attention is the issue of childlessness, barrenness. See, if you're an avid Bible reader, and we all should be, <laughs> throughout the Bible story so far, childlessness is, is not a condition unique to Hannah. We've met others throughout the Scriptures, even up until the point of, of 1 Samuel, who are in the same situation. And it seems every time someone comes up, it's a, it's a forerunner for God's undeserved blessing, for His grace. It's a a canvas for God to show who is the one who is in control, how he loves his people, who is leading his people. So in Genesis 11, Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren, but God promised through Abraham she'd bear a child. She bore Isaac. Isaac became the bearer of the great promises of God. To what? To bring blessing to the nations on the earth. Genesis 22, Rebecca was barren. Uh, Isaac prayed for her. She bore twins, one named Esau, one named Jacob. Jacob would become the father of the Israelite nation. This name would be great and spread. Jacob's wife too was barren, but God listened to her and opened her womb and she bore Joseph. And through Joseph, God saved many lives throughout Egypt. In the book of Judges, we hear about a woman who's unnamed. She's just barren and had no children she's visited by an angel and was promised a son and gives birth to samson samson then delivers god's people israel from the philistines and ruled israel for 20 years in in each of these cases there were women who shared a sadness like hannah's but in each case a child was born who would be god's answer to the crisis at the time So what would happen with this childless woman named Hannah? Why in this context is she so important at a national level? What we find out is like everything on earth, the reason Hannah is childless, the reason this is happening this way, is because God is doing something. God is behind everything. In verse 5, we're told on the screen, it was the Lord who had kept her from conceiving. What's clear throughout the pages of of 1 Samuel and throughout the Bible is that behind the obscurity and insignificance of what's kind of happening here, God is in control. He's the one calling the shots. Not only do the Bible narrators say that, but it's the understanding of the characters throughout the pages of, of Scripture. Elkanah didn't understand why the wife that he loved was suffering sorrow. He didn't know why. But he did know that their circumstances were given to them by the God he worshipped. The way he behaved to his wife was affected by that understanding. Did you notice that? As Catherine read the word for us, did you notice that as he's in this situation with a wife who cannot, his first wife, the wife he loves who cannot bear him children, he doesn't resent her, he doesn't blame her, he just loves her because he knows that God is in control. He saw the circumstances in the way that we should all see our circumstances, even those we don't like, that all things that come our way are God's doing. He's sovereign and in control over everything that happens and everything that doesn't. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should just sit there and do nothing about it. We should just passively accept whatever happens to us. We're going to see in a moment that's not the way God necessarily wants us to respond. But what it does mean is that we need to humbly recognize that God is the one who is in control. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, it it is the plan of God. From Elkanah's godly conduct, the scene then shifts to Penaniah. Straight away... She's described as Hannah's rival. She's a rival. Now have a look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. And what we see here is that it's, it's possible for people to take something that's true, to take a distinct theological truth that God is in control of all things, even this kind of what is happening right here to Hannah, and twist that truth and use it in wrong and evil ways, and that's exactly what Peninnah does. She repeats the words with a totally right understanding that it is God who closed Hannah's wombs, womb. <laughs> but then she starts taunting her and 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 provoking her. You can imagine, right? You can imagine the words as they as they go. Probably about the only time they go together anywhere. I'd imagine they live in separate houses. Um, I can't see how it would work otherwise. Uh, so they, they go together to sacrifice at the temple because the families go, well, one family and Hannah. You can imagine the lines, can't you, from this, this woman. What are you doing here? <laughs> you know what God thinks of you. Why are you bringing sacrifices to the Lord? You know, what have you got to give thanks for? The only thing you want, I've got. You can see how she uses a theological truth. God is in control to say, maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe, maybe. But Hannah doesn't retaliate. She just weeps. She's so distraught. She can't even eat the portion that Elkanah gives her. She's like a woman in verse 15 with a broken heart. And you understand why. And here we get like a window into the character of Elkanah. Again, he's, he's nothing special, no amazing leader, but he truly loves his wife. Did you notice that? Have a look at verse 8. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah asked. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Now he's a little bit slow, maybe. Often guys can be. But he gets there. Am I not better to you than, than ten sons? Is not my love for you so important? Like most guys, he's got an overinflated ego, probably, a little. Like, look at me, I'm here, you might not have sons, but I, I'm, I'm... And there's a right priority to that relationship in marriage of husband and wife. But you can see he loves her. He, he cares deeply for her. She has his love, even though she might not have his kids. As a side note to husbands, I want to say that's how it should be, guys. We need to be loving our wives, which means we need to be there for them when times are hard. It means listening to them, really. It means caring for them and and, and comforting them and leading them to keep trusting in God no matter what the circumstances are. That's our job. That's the privilege of being a husband. Tears aren't a sign for guys to run. Just a kind of little note. They're a sign for us to listen and to love. We've got to make sure we don't try and sidestep our responsibilities to love our wife. Well, so far throughout this whole story, Hannah has been the the passive recipient of every action throughout the story. Everything has happened to her from others. Um, God closed her womb. Um, Penaniah taunted her. Uh, Elkanah came and gave her words of comfort. All these things were happening to her, but now for the first time she acts in what appears to be an insignificant action. But it turns out to change not only her life, But the life of the nation, and if you dare to see it, the history of the world. Have a look at verse 10. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. This is no light moment. It's not just like, oh yeah, I'll just quickly quickly pray and I'll be fine. She's deeply hurt. Literally, the words are bitter of the soul. It's an idea of deep disappointment and dissatisfaction and discontentment with the circumstances of life. What we have on view here is a deeply unhappy woman. But out of her misery and through her tears, through that hardship, she prays to the Lord, to the one who is in control. See, she knew what the narrator has already told us twice. God is the one who closed her womb. But it led her to act in a way that was different to both her husband and her rival. She prayed, she acted, she spoke. Why? Because she knew God determines all things and that he determined to close her her womb. Why bother if God had done that? Why, Why go to him if she knows God's in control? Because she knew the character of God. Have a listen to verse 11. Listen to the reason. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. Now that vow, that promise is, is, is a Nazarite vow. It's a, it's a vow to say, this child I'll, I'll dedicate to serving God. It's, it's exactly what happened with Samson. Perhaps it was the story of Samson and his unnamed mother that reminded her of God's saving actions through Samson. Perhaps it was remembering the way God dealt with Israel in the past the way he looked on their afflictions. That word afflictions is used so often of the way God remembers his people. He sees their afflictions and saves them from Egypt. So Hannah begs God to do for her what he had done for Israel in the past. She's asking God to do what was characteristic of his behavior, to be God toward his people, to love his people. This is no kind of like call out of the blue with the last minute quick a prayer, God help me, I've got nothing else left. Nor is it a bargain with God. She's not making a promise that she thought would induce God's favour. She doesn't have a view that says, oh, you know, if I say I'll give him to the Lord, maybe that'll be enough. And God will be like, oh, okay, I'll do what you want now. You've got me. You've twisted my arm. I'll do what you want because, yeah, otherwise I couldn't have got him to serve me. No, he's the God who's in control of all things. It was just an honest prayer. There's a few things here that are worth looking at. Firstly, she addresses God in terms of who he is, of his power and his majesty, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. She knows who God is, his control and his power. All true prayer is like that, coming to the one who is in control and recognizing him. We can talk to him Not because we've found God, but because he's found us. Because he has come to us, because he has revealed himself to us. She knows who God is. And she acknowledges him with the majesty he deserves. And secondly, she acknowledges her place before him. She says, your servant, your slave. She knew who she was before God. We're in no place to demand any rights from God. He made us. We have all turned away from him and at points in our lives done whatever we wanted rather than treating him as the king that he is. We have no rights to stand on. She knew that. And so she comes humbly before God. Again, that's what true prayer is like. And thirdly, She made her request known to God. She wasn't trying to trick him, wasn't trying to backhand him. She just asked for what she deeply desired. What was that? God's attention. Look look closely. Verse 11. If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember me and not forget me. She wanted God to recognize her. She runs to God and asks God to run to her. She's not trying to to run away from the one who's closed her womb, but to run to him, recognizing his control, wanting him to treat her as he had treated Israel in the past. She wants to be known. She wants to know this God and for him to care for her. That's what faith is, friends. That's what trusting God is. It's not just a leap in the dark. It's based on evidence. It's based on the way he's acted in the past. And so she makes this vow. Should God grant her request, then she promises to give the one he has given her back to him, to serve him, to be used by him to worship the God who loves her and her people and his world. Prayer for Hannah wasn't a formality. It wasn't a checkbox that she needed to go through. It, It was real. She put her concerns before the creator of the universe, and he cared for her. But if at this point we only see Elkanah and Hannah as examples to follow... If we kind of see what they've done and go, look, you know, Elkanah was a, a godly husband and he trusted God and loved his wife and Hannah was a, a godly woman who um, in the midst of deep sorrow and pain reached out to God and trusted him. If, if that's all we get from here, then we're misunderstanding the message of 1 Samuel. Oh, we can get that. We can see their examples. But is 1 Samuel saying that if you're sad and you're a woman, and you can't have kids or you're in some kind of huge disappointment in your life. That if you pray to God and you pray honestly, that your disappointment will turn to joy because God will give you what you long for. Is that what it's saying? Is that how we are to understand the promises here? Now, I take it that Hannah's story was repeated all over Israel. With many other women in the same situation. I think it's reasonable to assume that There were many women like Hannah who couldn't have kids, who were childless or faced massive disappointments. And who, like Hannah, trusted in the Lord. There were some who actually put their lives in his hand and prayed to him. But unlike Hannah, they didn't receive children. I take it that that's the same today too, isn't it? There are many who who trust God, who put their lives in his hand and, and don't get these promises. See, we are told this story of Hannah not because it's normal for every troubled person in Israel who prayed sincerely for a child to get one, but because it's unusual, because it's unique, because out of all the troubled women in Israel, the Lord chose to grant the prayer of this one, this small and insignificant and seemingly powerless person through whom he would raise his leaders. His king. Why did he do it? Well, it wasn't because she was sincere. It wasn't because she was the most miserable woman of Israel or because she'd made an extraordinary vow. He chose to answer the prayer because through this unimpressive family, God was going to impact all humanity. He was going to use her request for God to do what he'd done before to save the world and to provide the leader that we need. See, the story is about God and His solution to the crisis humanity has got ourselves in. And if we insist on looking to the seemingly powerful and the influential and the impressive of this world, if we insist on seeking glory in ourselves and in our leadership and looking for glorious leaders to follow that will give us all the answers, we'll miss it. We'll miss what is so clear here at the start of 1 Samuel, that a childless woman with family connections to a little town called Bethlehem looks insignificant, but from such a one as that comes grace, comes God's undeserved blessings for the world, his answer to the crisis of humanity. 1,500 years later, a doctor named Luke gathered together the reports that were surrounding a man named Jesus. And he gathered together a report of what went on at his birth. Listen to this line, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Today, in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. Through Jesus, God would bring life out of death blessing out of poverty and make insignificant and rebellious nobodies like us the inheritors of the universe, God's very own children. Does God care for the crisis of world leadership and and what's going on on a global scale? Absolutely. He has provided his son. God became man so he might lead the world in a way that we couldn't by dying as a perfect sacrifice in our place and rising again to rule everything. Does God care for seemingly insignificant nobodies like us? Absolutely. The God we meet in the Bible is the God of history, the God of all power and might, and he's the God that listens to the cry of an insignificant country girl. And so organises the world that through her prayer and her godly desire, he brings grace, undeserved blessings on the world. Friends, as we open the start of, of One Samuel Together, Grace has come. Don't you think it's extraordinary that the broken heart of some country girl should matter at all to the creator of the universe? But it does. She does. And what's more, through her faithful prayer, God will raise up the leader that you and I need. And there's lots more to say through the book of 1 Samuel about who that leader is and what sort of leader they should be having. But here there's one thing that we can do right now. See, Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus, writes these words about leadership and about how we should respond to Jesus. Listen to this, 1 1 Peter 5 verse 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your care on him because he cares about you. Today don't go away seeing Jesus as some insignificant nobody from a town no one knows about who means nothing to you. Don't Go away still looking for someone to follow. Come. And over the next nine weeks, let God point you for the first time or for the 500th time to the amazing leader he is and will provide in his son. Come and see Jesus, the leader we need, who's died in our place and offered us life. And on him, cast your cares. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for your word to us through 1 Samuel. Through that insignificance and obscurity, you point to how amazing you are and we are so thankful. And we ask today that as we start this journey through 1 Samuel, we would see the leader we need in your son who would see the way you are in control and the way that you long to act the way you've done throughout history, bringing people back to you, saving people despite our rebellion and our lawlessness. We ask today that we would be so captured by your son, Jesus, as we see what he's done, that we might serve him with our all and cast our lives before him, that he might be our king. We pray this in his amazing name. Amen.